Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. To live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what someone truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and on my show today, my guest truly embodies that phrase. Ryan Muncy is the author of the hard-hitting book titled Fuck Your Feelings and the co-host of the Better Human Project podcast. Now, Ryan is a highly sought-after thought leader who specializes in high performance and the development of both individuals and organizations. An athlete and inspiring wilderness wizard, Ryan personally coaches celebrities, Olympic athletes, professional athletes, special forces operators, leading entrepreneurs and C-level executives while speaking and hosting workshops around the world. His work has been featured in Forbes, Fortune Magazine, Men's Health, and Men's Fitness. Now, I've always said that emotions assassinate the truth, but I believe that Ryan's concept of fuck your feelings captures this brutally and brilliantly while waking the reader out of their slumber of mediocrity. This idea is perfectly aligned with the ethos of Octonomberba. Ryan, that was a long intro, but uh, thank you for indulging me. How are you doing, my friend? It's great to talk to you. I'm doing well, Marcus. Thank you so much for having me, man. Anytime somebody gives me an intro like that, I, I always make a joke that it's all downhill from here. But I need to stop doing that. I need to like own that and, and step into uh, that intro. So, man, I, I love what you said about um, emotions assassinate the truth. That's uh, that's uh, I, I like that phrasing of it as well. It's so true because when we're in the heat of it, we're in the face of adversity or anything. Those emotions are the first thing we feel. And you brilliantly described this with the limbic system and sympathetic and parasympathetic and all that with the innervations in the book. But it's so true. And we understand all these things conceptually. And philosophically, we may have these phrases in our minds. But when we're in it, when we're in the heat of it, in the fray, it often abandons us or it's hard for us to follow through. And that's when we need to have, again, this that mantra that you have, that fuck your feelings. It's like, it doesn't really matter. Do you truly want to get to this place? Because this is the litmus test to see how much you really want it. You know, I'm essentially a two-year-old that never <laughs> stopped asking why, <laughs> right? Like, we all know, like, the, the kid that's like, but why? Well, the sky's blue, but why? And it just keeps going down that road. And, you know, my background is in nutrition and, and then uh, fitness, you know, as, as you mentioned, kind of in the, in the intro, you know, I used to own a gym mm-hmm. for the better part of 10 years, you know, I was working with people on, you know, health and wellness and nutrition and strength, weight loss goals. And, you know, early on, I think like most people who get into those pursuits, we get very obsessed with or infatuated with the X's and O's and, you know, how cool can we make the training? And that could be a whole other conversation of coming back to, uh, I love that quote from Bruce Lee, you know, uh, at the first level of punch is just a punch at the second level you know, you think a punch is, you know, whatever. And then the, the third level is a punch is still just a punch. You know, it's like in the strength world, you could say the exact same thing about kettlebells, about squats, about bodyweight training, all those things. And so, 
you know, I think as a coach and as a fitness professional, I went through that. And then when I got kind of to that level of, okay, the tools are just tools. What's really going on here? And I started having people come in on Monday and they're like, well, how many burpees do I have to do to undo what I did over the weekend? Nobody actually said burpees, but you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're nodding your head, you're laughing. And I think everybody listening understands this. And that's really where the seed for the book came from. I, I wanted to know why people's actions weren't congruent with the goals that they told me, you know, that they come to me to achieve. You know, I can give you the perfect diet. I can give you the perfect workout plan. I can give you a business plan. I can tell you what needs to be done. But at the end of the day, you've got to do it. And this continues to show up in in all the coaching that I do and all the work that we do. Before we hit record, you were talking about, you know, you you got to do a, a presumably a Zoom meeting with like you spoke to 300 people this morning, which is phenomenal. And it doesn't matter how big, how small the group is, what it is, you know, we can all, it's, and again, like I hate to speak in parables or idioms, but you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And it's like, give them the plan, but, but ultimately they have to do it. And so for me, it, it was just years of frustration of, you know, okay, why are we not sticking to this? Why are we not following through and what is going on? And so, you know, from about, I guess, 2015, as I transitioned out of the gym through the end of 2017, when I finished writing the book, I had the opportunity to work with and talk to individuals who are incredibly high performers, all the, the demographics that you hear in the bio at the top of the podcast, right? And, and at the same time, I'm interviewing researchers and you know, cognitive behavioralists and you know, all these people that, that understand the, the theory and, and are diving into neuroscience and what's going on in the brain. And then you have these high performers who are doing the things. And the book was, was really just a way to overlay and, and kind of synthesize you know, the theory and the application of this. And, you know, for anybody who has listened to the podcasts that I've hosted, you know, I always want to be respectful of people's time. And, and if you're investing that time in, whether it's a social media post, uh, an email blast, a podcast, I want you to walk away from that with something that you can put into action. And so, you know, I couldn't very well write a book and, and not provide action steps. And so, you know, the first half is kind of understanding what's going on, uh, a user's manual, if you will, for, you know, being a human. And then the rest is, is sort of, okay, here's what you do with this information so that you can be captain of your soul, master of your ship, and, you know, live the life that you want to live by design instead of, you know, letting that limbic system or, or unconscious belief system and, and patterns drive you without your consent. Yeah. And you do it so beautifully and it overlaps well because like you say, there's going to be people that some of the book is really going to hit them because of the power and the pragmatic component to it. But other people need to hear, like you say, the why. Well, why? Well, why, why is the limbic system so important? Why is this part of the brain, you know, why is this new, so to speak, comparative to everything else? And I think that this answers almost all the questions that people have. And like you say, when I was teaching martial arts, when I was doing coaching in person, for a physical component, so many people would, they would want to, like you say, it's almost like they were trying to figure out what's the least amount that they needed to do to get away with something, as opposed to how much do they really need to pour into themselves for that true fulfillment, because they do want something, but it comes down to, again, are they willing to do the work consistently, which is what you point out. And then I also think it's brilliant because in this entrepreneurial space, especially young entrepreneurs, 
It's about grind, team no sleep, hashtag, right? And they want to push, but they don't understand that that is not sustainable long-term. And if you want to do this long-term, which unless you're trying to you know, create something and pump it up to 20 million and then sell it, then this will be a long game. And so you make these great comments about you know, moving the chain, making something that even if you're at 75% of your capacity, if you can do that consistently, you're going to get a lot further. That's a much better ROI. I talk about you know, laying a bricks, the whole Lao Tzu mentality of, I'm not trying to build a wall. I just want to lay this one brick perfectly. And that could be a burpee, it could be a kettlebell swing, it could be a run, it could be a presence of conversation. But that quality goes over in everything that we do. And if we're willing to truly commit to that, that becomes sort of our default setting. So the way that you describe it in the book is tremendous. And I got the physical book and then I listened to the book because I love having, being able to hear the voice, but then being able to go through and I'm like, this is what he's talking about. Okay, now I have it here. And then like you said, with Evernote, then you just, bam, it's everywhere you need it. So it's, uh, it's powerful. You know, I think that's one of my favorite, I guess you can call that a compliment, but but I get a lot of people that will either buy the book through my website or just reach out and they'll say exactly that, that they have consumed it both in audio form and have the paperback. And I mean, when I wrote this thing, I was like, man, I hope somebody reads this book. And to have people writing in and saying, you know, that they're consuming it on, you know, multiple platforms and, and multiple times, that means the world to me now. But But I can honestly say that it's not, it didn't happen without intention, you know, and that's something else that, that you said before you hit record, right? It was you, you had certain intentions with a lot of the work that you do. And as I was putting the book together, I was thinking about reflecting on a lot of the books that have had the biggest impact on me, the books that I go back to and the ones that never really make it to the bookshelf, you know, the ones that are, you know, they're sitting out somewhere because I pull them out and, and look at them often. And it's funny you mentioned Lao Tzu. Uh, I've got, uh, copies of Dao De Jing everywhere. Man. And it's probably the most gifted book uh, that, that I've gifted. I, yeah. I give that to everybody. Yeah. We mentioned Scott McGee. I actually gave him a copy of that. Um, oh, brilliant. And so I, I, that's what I wanted. I wanted to create something that was timeless and, and that people could refer back to and kind of use as a guide the way I had with other books. And so to hear that, it just uh, it means everything to me. On the same way that my grandfather named me Marcus Aurelius, so that's an impossible name to live up to, right? But what it does is, as a 12-year-old boy, you start getting this curiosity about who is this guy, this Marcus Aurelius guy. And I got meditations on my 12th birthday because I was given a gift certificate to get something, and it just went over my head. To me, these, thus, thou, with, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I was kind of upset because who is this guy? And I don't even like what he writes, and I'm named after him. But what I did was I went back to the bookstore, and I didn't understand I just thought, oh, he wrote a bunch of these books. It's like, no, this wasn't even supposed to be published. This was literally just his journal, his reflections, his meditations. But what I did was I was walking away pissed off. And as I'm walking down the philosophy section, there's a book that's faced out and it has this beautiful Chinese calligraphy. And I was like, hmm. And I've been doing martial arts since I was 11. So there was the connection. I grabbed the book. I opened it up. And it was a statement that said, if you continue to sharpen your knife, it goes blunt. And even at 12, I was like, okay, I, that makes sense. That makes sense. I get it. <laughs> and that was my gateway to understanding not just philosophy, but then to get into Stoicism and Zen and Buddhism and you know all the, the Greek classical kind of ideas of logic. And that's why it's so beautiful to me that you were mentioning that book specifically. Since we're talking about it, what other books really 
pop out for you? And so this one will be like way outside the realm of, of what we do. But I love um, it. I love it. You know, like I said, my background is in nutrition. My degree is actually food science and human nutrition. So I, I'm a food nerd. And one of the first books that was really, really a resource for me is uh, Johnny Bowden's 150 Healthiest Foods on Earth. And I don't know when that book came out, but I got my copy of it while I was still uh, in college. So I would have gotten it in 2006, 2007, something like that. And then it went with me to New York when I left college. And you know, my apartment in New York was on the 10th floor, no air conditioning, brutally hot. Like, yeah, the, yeah, like that's my worst summer ever. But that's only relevant because I would keep the windows open. And that book sat on the windowsill. And one time we just had this huge downpour and it got soaked. And so you know how any book like dries out and it gets all like warped and uh, pages are all mangled. And it was funny. I saw him at a conference. It would have been 2016, maybe or 17. And I was telling him that story. And he was like, man, I got another copy. Like there was like a second edition and he had it with him and he signed it and he gave me a brand new copy of it. Uh, wow. So really cool dude. But just the way that book was put together, and if anybody has seen the book, you know what I'm talking about. But it is a book that you could read cover to cover. But more than anything, it's a book that you know you can pick up, flip to any page, and you can learn about a specific food. If you want to look a food up, you can do that. So it's just a great resource. And as I was getting into nutrition, I always make this joke that I learned more about nutrition in my own self-guided study than I did in college coursework. And anybody who knows yeah. what you're taught in a, a dietetics program knows that it's appalling. And that's exactly why I'm not an RD. I was not going to pay to be a part of that. Uh, let's just call it a group um, so that we don't get in trouble. Right? But I, didn't, I just didn't want to be a part of that. So to this day, if I meet somebody that's an RD, I'm a little bit leery because I know what they have to do to get that. And I know what they have to do to protect and keep that designation. So that book was huge for me. And just knowing how much I went back to that, I, I wanted something along those lines. Now, the layout is, is nothing like that, uh, you know, that particular book. But, but that was one. Uh, we mentioned Dao De Jing. I mean, those were, were kind of the two biggest in terms of, you know, thinking about something that I go back to. But it was more of trying to create that as a resource, not necessarily copying the layout, if that makes sense. Yeah, the inspiration, the idea of keeping it, you know, user friendly, making it specific, making it something that people can take value from. And I think timeless was a word that I used in the first description that, especially with the book, like 150 Healthiest Foods, I mean, think back to 2008, like it'd be really hard to write a book about food in 2008 that in 2018 is still accurate, relevant, and cutting edge, right? And so I'm really, impressed with the way that he did that. And, you know, I think you have to be very, and even obviously with Lao Tzu, you know, write something that long ago. And I'm not sure which translation, you know, you've read, but my favorite is Stephen Mitchell translation. That, that was the one. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, to write something that long ago, that is so, I mean, it just stands the test of time and it's so universally applicable. And, you know, that was something that I tried to keep in mind as I kind of put all the pieces together. Yeah. And I, for me, that book, Loud Zoo's book, Thick Face, Black Heart, I'm not, I'm sure you're, you've heard of it at least, or probably, you've probably digested it and read it many times. And then The War of Art by, um, oh, yeah. Pressfield. I mean, come on. If you, if you don't want to write, you read that book and you're like, damn it. 
okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to write. And I will read anything Pressfield writes for the rest of my life. I, I agree. That From dude, Gates of Fire on, yeah. Yeah, that dude. Have you read his newest, uh, The Artist's Journey? I have not. I bought it. I have not got to it yet. So. I think it's his best one so far. Well, okay, so I'm going to have to stop what I'm doing and, and get to that guy. I mean, Turning Pro was... was And do the work was amazing too, yeah. Yeah, I, I those have a way of just, you know, like you said, when you need to say fuck your feelings and get some shit done, like yeah. those are great kind of kick in the butt. I think the artist's journey is an exploration of that moment, right? Like, why do we procrastinate? Why is this so difficult? What is it that we're trying to do? And, and he does such a fantastic job of articulating yeah, so eloquently. Uh, the work that has to be done. And so I'm sure you're familiar with the hero's journey. And so he makes the argument that, you know, the artist's journey is what we do after the hero's journey. Mm. And that every single day, I won't spoil it for you, but, but the, the gist of it is that the artist's job is to, you know, connect to a higher realm, bring these things back and, and turn them into, you know, something useful. And, you know, that that requires multiple heroes journeys every single day. And it resonated with me. And I just, I love, I mean, you know, if you've read his stuff, his ability to articulate things in very frank language. I appreciate that. And that's what I love about it because he has that laconic right to the point, And then he can eloquently evoke your emotion within that and then punch you in the face and kick you in the ass. And you're like, Okay. Yeah, he's right. He's right. He's right there. He's on my shoulder. I'm going to get to work and I have to get it done. And there's so many different parts of this book that I, I love that of yours, but touching on some of these things, was there a specific sort of philosophy that really impacted you? I mean, I say adversity is a gift when I don't want to do something, but your idea of fuck your feelings, again, is very much about keeping us on that straight and narrow. Was there sort of an inspiration for that or was that just something that came to you sort of in the heat of it, I guess. I will say that it, it is definitely something that I have said to myself. I can't say that my mom has ever said it, but it's very much something that my mom would say or do. You know, she was always, you know, growing up, she she was always the one, like, it's funny, I'll, we'll be watching TV and I'll hear like sayings or, or, you know, different things. And I'm like, man, my mom used to say that or mom said that. And, and you know, she... You know, both of her parents were were immigrants and, and very hardworking people. Mm. Uh, her dad, my grandfather, was in the military, and so he, you know, he was just, you know, you got to think like, you know, he's an immigrant and a military man, and just, oh yeah, you know, it was his way. You were getting no the power way. hand just, too, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get it done. And so she was very much that way too. And I think it's just a. And somebody asked me years ago, or, or you know, I, I don't know. Time time kind of runs together now, but. You know, in, in an interview, they asked me like what, you know, I learned from her and it was really just hard work and sacrifice. And I won't go into all the things that, you know, she did that, that led to that. But, and from my dad, I learned that, um, you know, what it meant to be a man, you know, to, to provide, to show up to, you know, no matter how you feel, you know, if, if my car broke down and I was 18, I know I could call him. He's there. Right. Or if I'm at college and something's wrong, I can call him. And he's, you know, whatever I needed, right? And so as parents, you know, they really taught me a lot of those like fundamental lessons, some by word, most by action, fitting with your uh, intro. And I think it was, and as I wrote about in the book, you know, that that seal fit experience in 2012 was, was very pivotal for me because 
I think that was, you know, as I talked about in the book, it really was that line in the sand moment where it was like, okay, it's time to grow up. It's time to, nobody's going to bail you out. Nobody's coming. It's all you like learn to take responsibility. And once I made that transition, it became very easy as a coach, you know, so, so that year was the year I started my business. And, you know, I would have to say that as I made that transition, I became an exponentially better coach because I could recognize in other people where they were on that journey. Yes. And, you know, like I said, at the top of, of this conversation, the more time went by, the more I became frustrated with others who are not frustrated with, but frustrated for, or, you know, seeing like, okay, here's a person that wants this thing. They say they want it, but they're not doing, you know, what they know they need to do. And so it was just, you know, fuck your feelings, like do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it, regardless of how you feel. And it was something that kept coming up over and over with, you know, the people that I would classify or consider as high performers. And then I think it was really cemented by the research from Antonio Damasio. And that was actually, I came across that for a keynote talk that I did at the Biohacker Summit in Sweden in the spring of 2017. And at that point, the book was like, you know, a twinkle in my eye. It wasn't even like an idea or it wasn't even like, I wasn't really considering writing a book. And so one of the other speakers at that event is a, an author and had a book deal and had a book coming out. and, And he came up to me afterwards. He was like, that was the best talk here. You need to do something with this. And so on that flight home, long, like nine hour flight, I just outlined was the first draft of the book. But that talk was really states versus traits. It was the explanation of that 95% of our decisions are made based on how we feel. And like I said, that's the statistic that submitted, you know, fuck your feelings. And so, you know, that whole talk was was kind of exploring that and, and kind of what became the thesis for the book. There's uh, so much in the book. And if you're listening to us and you haven't read the book, you have to grab it or listen to Audible or get both if if like I am. There's a lot of research that happens and a lot people don't understand, like you say, when you're creating a book, again, we can have ideas, but then we have to unpack this and we have to check this and we have to track this down and make sure that this is correct. And where did I find that? And is this what it is? What was something that you learned that surprised you when you were doing the research for the book? What was an assumption that you had or something that you thought to be true that ended up not being what you thought it was going to be? Yeah. So I'm, I'm laughing because, you know, I'm trained as a scientist. I wrote more lab reports in, in college and high school than I care to admit. So I had it, it just drilled into me. Like, you know, if you're going to say something, you have to be able to back it up. But, you know, I'm also aware, like, hey, I'm, I don't want to say I'm a nobody, but like, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not an academic, you know, I'm piecing all this stuff together and, and I'm, you know, positing these kind of bold statements. So I need to be able to back it up. So, you know, I made sure anything that I felt like I wanted to say that I did the research from several different angles to make sure that, you know, I could say that or that, you know, it was in fact accurate. It's been so long. I don't know. I don't remember anything that I thought was true that ended up not being true. I think what stands out to me with all the research is I remember being sort of blown away or or fascinated by how much things started to overlap as I went deeper and deeper into the research. And, 
you know, the more you looked into, you know, the research of the brain, you have guys like Dr. Stephen Porges, who is the person who discovered heart rate variability. And his research is on polyvagal theory. And he's positing that this 10th cranial nerve has a hierarchy of responses. And so the base level of that would be immobilization. The second level is fight or flight, which is sympathetic. And then the highest level or, or the third would be um, the parasympathetic or, or more like evolved neoprefrontal cortex. And that's language or communication. Like how can we talk our way out of this problem? You know, di- diplomacy or tact, if you want to make it like geopolitical. But that ended up aligning almost perfectly with, you know, guys like McLean's triune brain theory. And, and, you know, then these things go as far back as like, people like Dawkins and Darwin, right? So even Charles Darwin is making notes about how they feel like emotion and feelings have survived evolution because they serve an advantage. And then I'm interviewing a neuroscientist at Cornell and he's saying that, you know, the exact same thing. And and then you start looking at like all the innervations of the 10th cranial nerve and you find out that they line up perfectly with all the acupressure, like energy vortices, and those happen to line up almost perfectly with all the chakras and yoga. And you're like, and what was really amazing to me is, maybe amazing isn't the word there, but I've always said success leaves footprints. And I've always tried to get people to look at the similarities rather than the differences. And so, you know, somebody comes to me, let's, we'll use fitness again, because that was my background prior to this. And you know, they're like, oh, well, well, what's better? You know, should we do CrossFit or should we do powerlifting or should we do strongman? And, and I'm like, if we, we take that same like success leaves footprints, right? What are the similarities between all these things, right? Like you've got progressive overload, you've got strength, they all squat, different variations, but they all squat. They all do this. They all, and if you look at like all the things that they have in common, they have a lot more in common than they have differences. And if you, I don't care what, style or what approach to fitness you take, if you do those things that, that all those disciplines have in common, you're probably going to end up being a pretty well-rounded, pretty fit person. And I, I just, I felt like taking that approach, just that's, that's kind of the way my mind works, but by not labeling things and just putting all those things in the book that all those places and, and you know, things, disciplines have in common you know, as you mentioned earlier, I think no matter where you're coming from, when you read this book, you see things that can be of benefit and, and be helpful. And and that's actually, that was part of that plan to kind of be timeless and a resource. And, and it's been amazing to see the application of that. I've had people from addiction uh, treatment centers reach out and say, hey, this is perfect for addiction treatment, whether it's getting over alcoholism or even porn addiction places have reached out to me, um, you know, because of like dopamine and and behaviors and limbic system and all this. Um, You know, I've had law enforcement, SWAT, fire, military, you know, first responders and and people who are kind of redliners, you know, all those groups have reached out. I've had teachers groups reach out, colleges and, and uh, there was a leadership class at a college that used this as their textbook. I mean, It's been amazing. And so I think, you know, it really, to me, it kind of reinforces that, you know, if we can kind of strip labels off of things and, and put all that synthesized information there that people can, can get to the information without a bias that is associated with some external label. Yeah, I, I'm very much try to be a philosophical atheist as best I can. 
I try to absorb truth irrespective of source without judgment, without, you know, any, it's tough sometimes. There's so much dogma attached to everything from nutrition to martial arts to philosophical compounds. And people want to do that because they want to be associated with this thing that is this truism. And the closer they can get to that by association, the, the more validity I believe that they feel. But I love Bruce Lee's concept of the most eloquent way that he said it was, I absorb what is useful, I discard what is useless, and I have what is specifically my own. But his original statement was, somebody asked him, they said, what is the best punch? He's like, I use whatever works and I steal it from wherever I can find it. <laughs> so he had no qualms. He's like, does it work? I'll use it. It doesn't work. I throw it out. That's it. And that to me is what philosophy is. I mean, you can talk about semantics, about labeling, but a philosophy is only useful as it is pragmatic. And if it empowers you and doesn't attach dogma or shackle you in some capacity, then that's what we need. And by doing so, it's very liberating. And just like you're saying, to me, these overlapping truths at the higher levels, they're all very similar. So instead of, like you said, instead of trying to split hairs about, well, according to this, when this was said, or this was done, or this interpretation, or this translation that's been translated 75 other times prior to this, of course, it's impossible for us to know. However, we can get the gist, we can get the residue, we can understand what the initial, hopefully what that intention is. And by having that, that gives us a better idea, not only into the mind of the person that created that, but into the movement that they were trying to get across to all of us. And uh, it's not always easy, but if we can do that in all these capacities, I think that serves us best. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just going back to what we were talking about with Pressfield, I mean, that's what I think Pressfield articulates and captures so well in the artist's journey. So I can't wait for you to read that. I will... uh, when we have you on Better Human Project, we'll talk about that. I'll have it read by then, and we'll be squared away, ready to go on all that. That was part one of my interview with Ryan Muncy, author of Fuck Your Feelings. You can hear part two of the interview on the next episode of Octanon Verba, where we continue the discussion and talk about the need for identifying priorities that will help you move the chains every day. Ryan also tells of how a tragedy early in his life had a tremendous impact on him and how he was able to find the gift in that adversity. You can find out more about Ryan Muncy at ryanmuncy.com. Until next time, live a life of Octa Nonverba. Thank you for listening to this episode of Octa Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to marcusareliusanderson.com and join his Octa Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.